The world of story has captivated humanity since the dawn of time. The oldest known form of communication, verbal storytelling is responsible for the continuity and development of civilization from its most primitive moments to its most advanced. Story involves a sense of mystical wonder, but is also a powerful medium for communicating real and concrete ideas that shape people's lives and make them take action. Steve Schramm, marketer, nonfiction writer, and story nerd, and Alex Jagir, fiction writer, wannabe game designer, and story nerd, join forces as worlds collide to discuss how story is the most powerful concept ever known and how it interacts with each and every aspect of our lives, from the most magical to the most mundane. Well, welcome into another episode of Story World. Steve here with my boy Al. What's up, man? Hey, doing well, enjoying the lovely night podcasting with you. Yeah, man. It's uh, I would enjoy a lovely night podcasting with me too if I were you. So no, Jerry, do so. that you if you on that you do by yourself. Well, anyway, okay. So <laughs> <laughs> we are we are in our second episode on the parables, and we are. Why, why don't you introduce the parable, and then I'll read the description this time. Yeah, so another pair. So last week we discussed the the Good Samaritan, one that I think a lot of people are familiar with. If you didn't really grow up in church or familiar with the saying "Be a Good Samaritan," this one I think likewise a lot of people are very familiar with um, about the prodigal son. And um, yeah, Steve will get an intro, but um, I think uh, this one gets talked about so often um, that it's kind of overlooked. So I'm glad that we're doing a deep dive into it. But Steve will give a little introduction on it, and then we'll get right into it. Yeah, because as we're um, as we were like studying for this and preparing for this, I I learned something new, and so we'll talk about yes, that. I'm, I'm excited. So um, okay, so this is the parable of the prodigal son. The description of it. So the parable of the prodigal son revolves around the relationship between a father and his two sons. The younger son, eager to live life on his own terms, asks for his share of the inheritance and leaves for a distant country. There, he squanders all his wealth on reckless living. Reduced to poverty and starving, he decides to return to his father's house, not as a son, but hoping to be hired as one of his servants. To his surprise, as he approaches home, his father sees him from afar and runs to him, embracing him with joy and forgiveness. The father orders a celebration in honor of his lost son's return. However, the older son becomes resentful, feeling that his years of loyalty and hard work went unnoticed. The father reassures the older son that everything he has is his, but they should rejoice because the younger son, once lost, has now been found. And this parable, if you want to go check it out in your Bible, is in Luke chapter fix, uh, excuse me, 15 and verses 11 through 32. The whole context of the passage is really important, though. So you should go back to Luke 15, verse 1, and start there, and then you'll understand the, the point of the story. Yeah, Stephen and I will cover that, too, here. Just the, the very start of it of what kicks this string of parables really off at this one in particular. Uh, first, though, I actually want to highlight um, the beginning of the description says that the parable discusses the relationship between a father and his two sons. And oftentimes we overlook the second son, but it really is a story about a whole family dynamic. Um, but yeah, so um, in verse one, I forget if it goes into verse two or not, but um, essentially Jesus is is eating with what the Bible calls sinners, uh, tax collectors. Usually those two are referred to hand in hand in the New Testament. 
And that's um, still true today, hey, man. It's still true today. It's uh, very, <laughs> the context of life. In fact, can I get was, a witness? It was speaking to us directly <laughs> about us. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, and so uh, the Pharisees and scribes come up, and as usual, they they see Jesus eating with sinners, and they don't like that very well. So they challenge them, and and they they ask him, you know, just mention why why are you eating with sinners? Um, basically, these are bad people. If you claim that you're good, why are you? wasting your time with them? Why are you spending with them? And so that was the thought I had. And then Steve looked up a, a really good quote. I'll read it off and then um, hear what Steve has to say about it. But it's by uh, John Martin. Um, not Ricky Martin. John Martin. Uh, not Rickers. Not Rick. The hearers immediately would have begun to understand the point of the story. Jesus had been criticized for associating with sinners. The sinners were considered people who were far away from God, squandering their lives to riotous living. In contrast with the younger son, the older son continued to remain with the father and did not engage in such practices. Um, so maybe give us some insight, Steve, onto what kind of the Pharisees were thinking about when they came to Jesus with this and some insight into that. Yeah, well, interestingly, it's honestly the same point that was made in the past. Uh, and it, we talked about the Good Samaritan. Um, it's a very, very similar point. And, and basically... So much of Jesus's ministry and the ministry of the disciples of Jesus after he, uh, after his ascension uh, to be with the Father again, um, is is this idea of breaking down those barriers and and helping people understand that the gospel is for all of the broken people in the world. It's available to all. It's not just for um, the people who are traditionally considered to be religious. And what's difficult about all this is I think if you were like talking to a religious person, they would amen that, they would agree with that, they would be, oh yes, brother. But then when you see how religious people tend to act, their actions sort of betray their words. And um th this is exact like this is exactly what was happening. Even all the way back then, you know, Jesus um obviously you had Pharisees who talked a big talk. When Jesus got a hold of them, he's like, you guys traverse sea and land to make one proselyte. And then you turn him into, you know, basically twice a child of hell as you are. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus had some mean things to say, uh, but they were truthful. They were they were accurate. And they always thought that because they were supposedly doing God's work, that that they deserved, right, some sort of pomp and circumstance. and you know, self-aggrandizement and all of that. And, and Jesus's point, which he made in many places was, no, I, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. It's, it's sinners who need me. And so the point of the story, which I had honestly overlooked, like I'm, I know there's lots of great, there's like, you know, lots of great points that you can make from this story, but I had honestly overlooked that the, the point of the story is again, to satisfy what happens in verse one, where he's being accused of meeting with sinners. And, you know, the point being to create that contrast that that it's like, OK, chill out like you're serving God. You're doing the righteous. Thing. That's fine. Older brother. That's cool. But like your younger brother was lost and he came back home. And so, yeah, we're going to like we're going to throw a party for him because he needs to be found. Right. He doesn't need to stay lost. And so I almost missed the whole point of the parable. And so um, it's a very important one. It's kind of. This is interesting. I'm sure that there's other instances of it, how it relates to parables, but at least in this circumstance, verse one it is essentially a very, very slimmed down quick version of the entire parable. 
anything that can be applied that's said in the parable can be found there. So the first thing that just kind of that we have jotted down here is the unconditional love aspect of it, which is what I think everyone is mostly familiar with when they hear the prodigal son. Right. They think, okay, the father loves his son no matter what he does. Comes back, loves Running him. with open yeah. arms. Yeah, the whole but, thing. Yeah, right. It, but if you picture the scene there at the beginning with Jesus eating with the sinners, the Pharisees uh, apparently um, come up um, in front of the, the sinners that he's eating with, ask him about it, you know, kind of in an accusing way. I imagine I could be wrong. I, I, I'm not a scholar on this time frame in history, but I imagine that the people probably felt inferior to the Pharisees and the scribes. I, I, I would I would imagine so, at least in some regard. And so yeah. right off the bat, I think how maybe not as an adult or the, maybe so, but think about in school, maybe you felt embarrassed by talking to like some kid that got made fun of or, or this or that. But um, Jesus, instead of giving some type of um, answer to just kind of push him away. He goes on a very long, um, really three parable rant yeah. of all these people and basically saying, Hey, I like in the end, I love these people and this is why. Um, it's just a really cool, like standing up for someone in front of them. And I just think that, hey. uh, think how much that whether it's your kid, um, or another family member or a friend, if you ever had the opportunity to stand up for that person, maybe they're going through a rough time or something. And just being able to mm-hmm. publicly say like, hey, like, I love this guy or, you know, I love my child. And no matter what, I'm always going to love them. It's just a really cool picture that that's set there. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. The fact that it's on such public display, you know, in front of those people. That's a good point. A really good point. It's really, really neat. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I like to do whenever I have an opportunity like this is to, is to get people thinking a little bit deeper um, just whenever the opportunity arises. And so two two things, neither of which are like uh, super profound, but just they come up from time to time in conversation. So I think they might be worth talking about. There is a big misconception, which is a, um, you know, it's perfectly uh, um, expected, perfectly reasonable in the context of the passage. But there's this big idea that when we talk about the prodigal son, that the word prodigal means uh, lost. It actually doesn't. It means wasteful. So it it talked about the fact that that the son is out in the world and he is wasteful with the father's money. He's reckless. He's making a mess of his life. So it speaks more to that than about being uh, lost. And so um, anyway, that actual word prodigal means wasteful or, or, or whatever. So that's kind of a useful thing. The other one that I, I wanted to mention is that, um, and this is going to be a bit, little bit of an aside, but again, I still think it's an important point, is the tax collectors, right? Like, why are tax collectors considered sinners? Didn't Jesus say that you should pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's? And so isn't it okay to have tax collectors, whatever? And so in the historical context, um, the idea is that tax collectors in that day were, it's not, people didn't hate them be, just because they took people's money. They took them because they often would would unbalance the scales and take more money than they should have. And so this is most clearly, in, um, um, most clearly, identified or seen in the story i'm like picking my words well tonight anyway it's most clearly seen in the story of zacchaeus who was a wee little man and a wee little man was he he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the lord he wanted to see and he was a he didn't sing it for us you just quoted it (laughs) and so he was a tax collector and he took like a lot of money from uh the people that you know, he was collecting the taxes from. And so part of like the restoration after he, uh, after Jesus got done with him, which by got done with him basically means ate with him and showed him compassion. 
Um, and once he started to follow Jesus, he restored back like fourfold what he had taken. And so the point is that these people were, it's not that they weren't evil for just collecting taxes. They were thought of as bad because they oftentimes took advantage of people that they were taking the, the taxes from. So completely unrelated to the story, but a sort of useful thing that, you know, sometimes that comes up. It's like, oh, this is a Bible contradiction. Well, it's actually not. You just got to understand the context yeah. of what's happening. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, wow, that's so a, the next, that, was a, that was a lot to unpack in just that one first verse. Right, <laughs> right. Totally, so totally. It's crazy. So the, the next uh, sort of theme um, is this idea of repentance and forgiveness uh, that we see in here. And so um, maybe talk about that just a little bit. Um, so two things, they kind of go hand in hand. The first thing directly related to the repentance portion, um, looking at the prodigal son, which is what the story typically focuses on. Um, it, I, I think uh, one thing here is, so the father's always waiting for him to return. Um, and he doesn't try to force his son to come back. He doesn't go out and chase after him. Um, it, it's up to the son to realize mm. it and, and to come to come back to his father. Um, and so uh, we all come from different circumstances in our life. You know, I, I have a really I'm very fortunate to have a, a great dad. Um, some people aren't as fortunate. I imagine if you told your it's told some people, well, just go tell your dad and he'll you know he'll love you no matter what. That might not be true for a lot of people out there, but Right, this example, of course, relating it to to Jesus is that he'll he'll take anyone back, whether it's your mm -hmm. first time, second time, third time. He's always there for you. Um, just a, uh, so I think that directly applies to the repentance aspect. One little rabbit trail that I just thought was interesting that I didn't think of until reading it tonight is um, that it doesn't say anything whether the father. I assume he probably did, but it doesn't speak to the wisdom that the father had in making the decision, but. Um, I read at the get-go, the, the youngest son asks for all the money, like right up front, and then leaves, and the father gives it to him. Now, the father could have not given it to him, or he could have gone a different route. Um, again, the story doesn't attest to whether this was the right or the best decision, but um, it's just interesting that mm -hmm. I, another kind of side thing out there is that it, it all works for good. So um, there's a great book out there with, I forget the name, but see, you have the decision making the will of God. But yeah. um, how, you know, God gives us wisdom and, you know, we try to make the decisions that we can and we're going to make bad decisions. But even in those bad decisions, it's still all going to work out. Um, anyway, I just thought that was a, a cool, like, kind of just a little side piece that popped out at me thinking about the father here. Yeah. Well, and so something you mentioned that I never thought of actually ties into another point that we talked about last time. So um, you mentioned how the father doesn't seem to have... Uh, chased after him in this sense. And I think it's, it's interesting because sometimes I think very clearly the Lord does do things to sort of prick our hearts and chase after us and follow us. But sometimes he doesn't, right? Sometimes he allows you to, uh, to get caught up and, and to um, make the realization yourself. And so I can't tell you how many sermons I have heard uh, that have to do with this idea of, um, what we find in verse 17, which um, if depending on what, what you know version of the Bible you read, when when he came to his senses or when he came to himself, basically when he he it got so bad that he finally realized what was up. He knew he had sinned against God. He knew he had sinned against his father. He knew he had been wasteful and came to back to his father's house like 
fully expecting his father to not even welcome as welcome as as a son, but instead merely as a servant. And there's a lot going on there, like a ton going on there. For one thing, the idea of the of the forgiveness, right? Of like we we come we run to the father when we find ourselves in these dire situations, and when we get back to the father, we find that that he never left us, right? We find that we are covered again by the blood of Jesus. We find that when we think we're in sin, actually, you know, it, it, there's forgiveness and there's repentance because Jesus has already paid the price for that. We don't have to pay the price for that again. So that's one thing. But the other thing being that this is another example where the father, again, probably in his wisdom, gave him some rope to mm-hmm. proverbially, to ver- proverbially let him hang himself with it, right? Gave him a little bit of rope so that he could come to his own senses. If he'd have just argued with his son, no, I'm not going to give you the money. You're going to waste your life. That might have added even more resentment to where the son might have said, forget that. I'm not going back there. The only thing, you know, worse than death would be going back there. I'd rather just die out here in my slot. Yeah. You know, I think that possibly that wisdom of the, of the father actually not uh, withholding that and not trying to convince him is what let him have the idea for himself, or at least contributed to that. So it kind of goes back into that Inception thing. The, the father almost plays a little <laughs> bit of Inception uh, on the kid. It's an aside, but it's a powerful point in that because he didn't choose to provoke wrath and not give him what he asked for and all of that, like that could have gone a completely different way. And I think that's something we should pay attention to as well. Um, to go right in hand, hand in hand with that, um, I, I assume too that probably along the way he had a lot of doubts about coming back to his father. And again, I know this isn't really talking about a real person, but it's obviously applicable to real situations and mm-hmm. it applies and rings true. But that, so the prodigal son didn't, I'm sure that he thought through his mind, you know, over and over, like, I, I can't go back there. Like whether it's, whether it's embarrassment or feels guilty or not worthy. And I mean, I remember, I think, I think we all at one point did in our, in our, in our faith feel guilty for either our wrongdoings or staying away from God and almost feel not worthy going to him. And it's a great reminder that we're, we're approaching God because Jesus has covered us with his righteousness, not ours. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we approach the throne and talk to God, it's, he doesn't see us and see ick and filth. He sees us as, as, as new creatures because of what Jesus did. And so it took me a long time to just kind of have that realization that you know, no matter how many times I fall or fail or, or, you know, feel um, unworthy, I can always, you know, boldly come to the throne. Um, just a good reminder there for that. One, 100%, 100%. This story tell, you know, is, is a great reminder of that. All right. So let's transition a little bit now uh, to the older son, because the older son does not get off scot-free in nope. this story. Um, In fact, you know, I th- I've heard some argue, and I think they make a good point. I've heard some argue that the story is almost a little bit more about the older son uh, than the younger son, because again, especially it's a big theme of Jesus's ministry. The religious crowd tends to think that they're doing all right when really inside uh, they are what the Bible calls whitewashed tombs. Um, and so the the big idea here is there's a, a three words that come to mind jealousy resentment but but the word for me that comes to mind really is selfishness this son was so selfish he was so wrapped up in what he was what he was doing that when his if you will long lost brother came home 
he 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 his selfishness had led to such jealousy and such resentment that he couldn't even enjoy his brother being welcomed home. He was just mad at how much uh, joy and pomp and all that that the father had towards you know his kid coming home uh, that he didn't get any of uh, because he had been there the whole time. And so there's sort of this this resentment uh, going on. And there's a lot there. The comparison trap. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it um, as we we were kind of talking about before, and what you kind of alluded to, but I think that this is the real kicker of the story that we we understand the forgiveness part. I, and it's just something that that you're taught in school, that you're preached at, that you might be yelled at by people. It you know the the forgiveness part, and you know accepted the the sign, and we're all the prodigal sign, yada yada yada. But then you always forget this part, and I think that um, the oldest son is really representative. I think of all of us at one point or other in mm-hmm. our life. Now, obviously there are certain parts where we, we like to see, you know, justice served against someone who deserves it. But this is really talking about someone who has, you know, turned from their ways, repented, whether they ask for forgiveness or not, they have a, they have a repentant heart. Yeah, they come back to the fold or back to the family or back to the church or whatever circumstance you're in. And it, it's almost like immediately we have that sort of resentment toward them. And it, it takes away from the joy of having someone returned to you. I, I don't know. I can't think of a specific instance where that has happened in my life, but I know for sure it has where you see either a sibling get in trouble or a classmate, and then they still get the same good treatment that you have. Um, and you think, well, that's not fair and that's not right. And that's where that resentment creeps in. Mm-hmm. But man, what a joy that you're robbing yourself from um, mm-hmm. to see someone come back like that. Um, that's kind yeah. of what first comes to mind. Yeah. Oh gosh. Ugh, there's so much here. How many hours do we have? Right. Um, um, one of the things for me, so like, again, going back to the point that arguably the story is more about the older son. Remember the context of the passage, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees this parable. Um, and the, the point is that again, they are to realize that they are the older son, right? That's, that's the point. They're the older son. So, yeah, there's obviously these huge elements of unconditional love and forgiveness and all of that. But I think if we're honest, anybody who's going to be reflecting on this, and this is, it's, it's great because this is exactly what Jesus was speaking to. Like, you and me, you and me, having been in church most of our lives, are far more likely to find ourselves in the shoes of the older son, yeah, right? Absolutely. Than of the younger son. Now, not that it doesn't happen. Uh, of course it happens, but going astray and falling into such blatant disregard for God's word and, and and for God himself and for the wastefulness and into the pits of sin and literally into the, into the, you know, eating with the pigs and all of that, that sort of thing for like most converted Christians is probably far rarer than being high minded because you see yourself as a child of God and that bestows upon you some sort of special status. Again, we would say that it doesn't, but we would act like it does probably far more often. And so that's why I think it's so important to, to not lose that, to not lose that. Our, our journey here is unique. Our story is unique. We are, uh, the, the father is just as pleased with our faithfulness and rejoices over that just as much as he rejoices over a, a, a new one who comes to him, but like 
there's a place for all of it. And when we start to compare ourselves to other people, we totally lose the fact that we're individuals. We have our own individual journey, our own individual uh, sort of relationship with mm -hmm. God. And one of the worst things you can do is compare your story to somebody else. I mean, without getting into it, somebody uh, very close to me in a position of leadership and authority who I might have looked at two weeks ago and thought, boy, that guy has really got it made. He's really got it going on. Uh, made a, a pretty big mistake. And today is, let's just say he's nowhere near at, at, that, at that same place. And it'd be so wrong, both, both when it was great and now when it's not great, it would be very wrong to compare myself or anybody else to him and, and to the, that situation um, at either point, right? Because it's not that I'm better than him in the situation that happened, and it wasn't that I was worse than him before learning of a situation that happened. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. that you just can't play that comparison game because it's such a trap. You're only responsible for who you are today. Are you moving forward and moving on in your relationship with God and with, with, with others, with your neighbor, better than you were yesterday? And where are you headed in the future? What's your vision like? What's your plan? You know, like that's what matters. You can only, you can only keep track of your own race. You're only racing against yourself and you're only running um, ultimately to please God. And so once you get that, you'll be so much more content mm -hmm. And so much less worried about what everybody else around you is doing and, and the race that they're running. And that's not to say, obviously, and so, you know, because we're human as well. We're not totally unconditionally loving like uh, like Christ is. That's not to say that there still isn't sure. certain circumstances that require reconciliation or a oh, plan yeah. for. There's obviously that. But mm -hmm. at the same time, that's not exclusive from the unconditional love and forgiveness and exactly the the selfishness that we need to cast out of our hearts so if there is a, a need for a reconciliation or coming together or a plan or something like that there still needs to be a 100 percent acceptance from a repentant heart um, put it that way i think mm -hmm. that's yep yep I, I totally agree i totally agree this is a great parable i mean it's a it's, it's a really, really good story there's so much here it's like you know, I mean, that, we didn't even plumb the depths of it. I mean, there's just a lot more here that you could go into, but it's a fantastic story that really illustrates some powerful things. I do hope that, um, I know that I will from now on, whenever I hear this brought up or read through it, um, I, even though as some, you never know, you may be the prodigal son at one point, like what you said, it's much more likely you're gonna be the second son. So instead mm -hmm. of skipping over this passage, I'm just gonna try to be reminded of that and just, yeah. you know, just be reminded that, that yeah. anything you're the pharisee in this situation yeah am i being yeah. the older son here yeah 100 yeah. yeah. am that's i looking good. my nose down at people yeah yeah that, that's yeah. good it's so all right Steve. i think that's all the notes i have on this how about yeah about yourself same same here man we're good awesome. perfect what is your story of the week let's get right into that sweet so um i actually just read it uh right before we got on to record this podcast and i thought oh man this is cool. just really really good from one of my favorite um writers and business leaders. His name is uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen. And the, the context is uh, basically injecting risk into your business or really in your life. Like, um, I'm not a big risk taker, but yet I realized, especially as an entrepreneur, that uh, most, uh, most great things don't happen without risk. And part of the context, just to set the scene, is his business partner 
Jason Fried wrote a little while ago that about the concept of um, like, are you a founder? Like if you, like most people call themselves, especially in like the software world, like a, a founder and CEO, but those are two really different things. Right. In fact, they're completely opposite. Like yeah. a founder oftentimes has to take risk and dive in head first and get things done and like move the business forward. And again, take giant risks in order for that to happen. Whereas the CEO's job is to control the chaos. Right. The CEO's job is to keep the trains running on time and make sure the business is profitable and stable. And you can't really do both at the same time very well. And so this is, again, a post that his business partner uh, wrote literally just today uh, that went into some other things. But this is like the last couple sentences of it. And I thought, oh, man, this by itself is just so good. He says, every company needs to have someone asking why we can't launch next Monday instead of next month willing to accept and underwrite the risks needed to make it happen. And with a stomach for occasionally being wrong, eating the loss, but keep playing. Now, I just love that because, again, there's um, in my life, what I have noticed is that the ideas that I sit on and wait on, mm-hmm. they never get done. And I just let them stew. And, and But like, if I take action, if I get on something and I get moving and I just turn it into something and I fix, if it's not perfect, but you know, a month from now, it's at least doing something and then I can iterate on it. Like for me, that's just how I work. That's how I, I operate. And anytime I go against that and violate that, whatever it is, it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. So the only things that work for me are when I take risks, take action, step out, make it happen. And so if you got something you're sitting on, like that would be the lesson of this, the takeaway, like get after it. Why can't you do it next Monday instead of next month? Like what is, what is the holdup? Do it. Freaking do it. And okay, that's it. And <laughs> it, it, and being wrong, it, it, I guess they're one and the same, but just for the sake, I'm going to divide the terminology up, but being wrong isn't the same as being a failure. Uh, you can be Correct. wrong Correct. so many times. I know the famous thing is used by Edison, the light bulb and a bunch of other stuff, but it's really what it, it comes down to is you yeah. can be, you can be wrong and you just learn from it. There, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong about being wrong. Um, and, so whether, and- when it comes to writing, writing a business, it, rather than just sitting twiddling your thumbs and worrying about the best road to take, why don't you just try one? It, pretty right. quickly, yeah. I mean, granted, there are certain um, examples where this isn't the case, it goes longer, but pretty quickly you realize if it's the wrong route or the right route. Wait a day or a week and mm-hmm. you'll discover whether, okay, this isn't the right path. Let, let me take this one. Well, and having done this for a while now, here's what I can tell you. In most cases, there's no significant you're not significantly less wrong by waiting until next month rather than <laughs> the next Monday, True. right? It's more oftentimes, or less the Oftentimes, right. Oftentimes, exactly. you're the same amount of right or wrong. The difference is, is that if you do it next Monday instead of next month, you get to find out quicker and change what isn't working. And so, you know, I, in the business world, a lot of times we refer to this as being ready, fire, aim instead of ready, aim, fire. And it's really two different philosophies and it's really hard to get anything off the ground when you've got two people who are especially if you have a partnership or whatever when you've got one who is one way and one is the other way like sometimes it can be good to to mix it up but then other times it's kind of like oil and water because yeah. lots of frustration builds because you can't get stuff done um so it is no, that, it is yeah, important. Great. i would just say that the uh, ready fire aim just shouldn't be taken literally if you're a hunter Let's uh let's just keep to the normal formula. I completely I endorse this message. <laughs> okay, I approve. Perfect. perfect. Okay. All right, Alex, your story. <laughs> My story of the week. Um, 
I'm really late to the table, but uh, my wife and I just started watching Breaking Bad. I've been wanting to watch it for so oh, long. Oh, and it really lives up to the hype. It is so good. I, I, I kind of, like, I knew that it's basically considered the best show of all time. So I, I went into it expecting it to be good. Um, I expected it to be really, like, gritty, intense. Um, I, I kind of thought the drug stuff would be really cool. That's what I thought would make the show great. But, man, the show, the writing... And the characters are phenomenal. And I think what the show does best, and I'm just just lear- just learning and reminding myself of different things from this, where the show puts characters naturally in circumstances that are super tense, but it doesn't seem no. out of the realm of possibility. Like based on their own decisions, they end up in these scenarios and the people that they talk to. And it just... So instead of randomly, oh, this guy shows up with a random gun into their house, what are you going to do? It Instead, all of the action, the tense moments seem purposeful. And you can oh, really, in a way, see the buildup to it, the result of their, the result of their actions. And it's just great writing and great Interesting. So a really good piece just to, just to watch and study, but enjoying it too. I'm, we're about halfway through the third season. There's five seasons, and I'm just loving loving every bit of it. Wow, awesome. I think I've only watched like two episodes of that. And this has been years and years and years yeah. ago. And I think I was just like really overwhelmed by the drug stuff that I was just yeah. like, I-, I don't know. Like this feels weird to be watching until I think I stopped that. I think now I can appreciate it more for what it is than I did back then. You know, back then I was less mature. And, uh, you know, to me, it was like everything I did. It's like I didn't, I-, I couldn't compartmentalize things. I couldn't realize, oh, this is just, this is telling a story. You know, this is, I'm not endorsing the use of drugs by like watching the show, (laughs) you know, whereas back then I might would have thought something along those lines. So, no, what I've, and what I've noticed too is there's definitely like, I would say the show is split up 50 50, roughly. Half the show deals with the the cooking of the meth and the distribution, the distribution, all that. But then the whole other half is dealing with family matters at home. And mm. trying to, you know, make decisions on what's right or what's ethical and seeing the kind of degeneration of some care. I mean, it's just phenomenal stuff. But anyway, that's what I've been into. And I'll provide an update once I finish it, how it ends. Uh, so Cool. Cool. Well, we are at almost the exact time that we ended our last episode. Yeah, we are, good we, we, we done really good. So um, this has been a great episode. And, I'm, um, uh, you know, I think a, a helpful topic for you, hopefully. I'm not sure which one we're covering uh, next, if you have that handy, yeah, feel free sure. to shout it out. But yeah, well, well, you'll be some. Well, you'll find out when we yeah. do. You'll uh, find out. And yeah. so, um, it should be fun. So otherwise, make sure to share it with your friends. Tell people, hide your kids, hide your wife, all that stuff. And um, <laughs> we'll, uh, and have we'll a see you guys way. in the next. One. And try not to It'll, talk like Steve. <laughs> do that. Do that too. <laughs> all right. See you, everyone. Bye bye.